welcome listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just remember, you can tune in via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. We prefer YouTube because we are such beautiful people. <laughs> I am Jim Galizia. Hi, I'm Victoria Fragnito, and today we are going to be joined by our day player, Nora Berman. Nora is a writer, director. She's going to share with us her short film, Pick a Color. And she also suggested for us to watch uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire as her movie choice for us today. Um, I think her short film, Pick a Color, is actually uh, a short, it was originally a feature length script. And um, mm -hmm. she ended up making a short out of it with the hopes to eventually, you know, make the full length feature. Um, but we'll obviously talk to her more about that process later. But I, I feel like I've heard of um, films doing, especially indie films, doing that, of taking the longer idea, coiling it down to a short so that they get something that they can feasibly make on their own. That way they can kind of shop it out. They can put it in film festivals, try and network and get the funding to make the full thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an easy way to make almost like a idea of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's the best. It, you can always come up with like an elevator pitch or show someone your script but there is no substitute to showing them like this is kind of what it is like it's a short version of it mm -hmm. so i mean you could always just make it in a lesser way so supposedly mm -hmm. um and it kind of acts like a little baby version of the film you really want to make which might be mm -hmm. a feature. so that's always a good way to get funding it's the easiest way to go to people and say hey look this is what i can do take a look it's the equivalent of having an actor's reel or a director's reel and saying, look at all the things I can do. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if I could do that for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, and I see the value in it for sure. And I think if you can get enough, enough of your own funding together to do a short, um, you know, that's a good idea. I know a couple uh, other people and companies, um, my fiance Nick's company included, made a, a sizzle trailer and not just a full, um, and not a, a, a short for it. Um, so I know that's another route you can do if you're trying to get people interested is to make a trailer. Because I know it's so hard to get people to read your scripts. People don't want to read. Yeah. They want to see stuff. And that's the big problem with like, I have a great script, and I have no funding, no nothing in order to make it at this point. So I need people to read it and hopefully see the value in it and see the potential in it. It's, it's also the reason people like myself prefer movies that don't need subtitles. Because I hate reading. <laughs> reading sucks. We don't like reading. <laughs> I like reading. Yeah, because you're weird. Uh, <laughs> really likes to read. If, I like to read. Right, but if you're given the Game of Thrones book, and you're like, oh, hey, read this book, black and white words on paper. Or you can watch Jon Snow chop some zombies in half. In real life, here it goes. I'll read the book. You're lying. I'm not. The yeah. books are always better than the movies. They are always better than the movies. Every single time. Just, do huh? Just start a British accent right now. The Why? books are better than the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Sound fancier. 
it's for me it's all about the visuals i need the visuals i i write i like reading comic books if anything because there's the visuals, visuals. <laughs> yeah. but sure. no the i read i want to see some cool pictures too <laughs> but i'm just saying that the the books are always better they have they fill the space is so much more there's so much more detail to it you can tell so much more of the story in a book so while like the Harry Potter movies, I didn't like them until the fourth movie, which I thought was, it was interesting because that at the time was the longest book in the series. It's 734 pages. I've memorized it because I've read that book so many times. Um, <laughs> but that, finally that film got closest to the book, which I thought was fascinating considering how much longer that book was than any of the previous books. Um, so, I mean, they left out huge chunks of things, um, obviously, because they had to tell the story, but the stuff that they kept in was finally so close to what the actual book said that it was, they started, the film started getting better from then on out. A lot of adaptations get wrong. They feel like, oh, they need a new take on it. Like, you could just do the thing that people love, but with real people. And there's obviously situations where it doesn't work, like Lion King and Lion King. Like doing a cartoon movie and translating it to still, you know, live action, quote unquote, because it's not live action. It's all CGI lions and mm -hmm. it's like a real lion, but it's not. And we know it's not, you know, a, a popular similarity that I would consider is Avatar The Last Airbender. Amazing cartoon uh Nickelodeon at its absolute prime <laughs> and I just rewatched it because quarantine mm -hmm. and it's on Netflix now so I rewatched it I've been rewatching the sequel series to it The Legend of Korra it's amazing but when they translated that to live action they lost so much of what made the show good because they wanted to have the M Shaman what what's his name M Night Shyamalan yeah M Shyamalanalama <laughs> <laughs> uh, he brought his spin to it, which I like his movies, but his style is so against what that show was all about. It was a very fun show, and while it took all these very big elements very seriously, they never stopped to, like, they never didn't stop to, like, laugh and have fun. It was still a fun show, and, and it, was, it was a great show, and they butchered it in the live-action movie. Butchered. But then there's shows like Game of Thrones that for the first three seasons, pretty much, almost verbatim with the books. And one of, you know, most popular show that's ever existed, probably one of them. Um, and then after they started diverting from the books and doing things a little differently or changing things up, people started to like it less and less. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's important to notice. Yeah, I... <laughs> I just think that I, I'm always a proponent. I think the books are better. I don't think that they shouldn't attempt to make films. I do like the Harry Potter films. I think that they're good. The last, the last half of them are good. But, you know, it's not going to replace the fact that the book is always going to tell you more. The book is going to give you more information. And the thing is, you can create so much more in your brain instead of having it told to you like this is how it actually is i love it when they give you you know obviously the hogwarts i had in my head was not what was 
on film. Doesn't mean I don't like what they put on film, but you know, it's your own imagination. I feel like you get a little more connected to it, but that's just my own opinion. Yeah. I still love movies. <laughs> Things get adapted too. I mean, that for Harry Potter, since we're talking about it, uh, originally wasn't Hermione supposed to be a young black woman? Uh, because she was described as, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Harry Potter nerds, I'm sorry. Uh, but she was described as having dark skin and thick curly hair. I don't think they ever actually talked about her skin tone. Maybe not. No, I, I don't, I don't think they did. I think, I think the thing is when they talked about her, um, when they described her in the book, they did talk about her thick, bushy hair and her rather large front teeth. Um, that was the description of her. So it, they didn't specifically say she was white or she was black, which is why they took the liberty when they made the first Broadway production of The Cursed Child and then adult Hermione, they uh, chose a black actress. Yeah. It's um, ambiguous enough. There's nothing saying that she can't be, but I don't think the book specifically said she was. I but, stood up in the theater and I said, that's not Emma Watson. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not Emma <laughs> Watson. Um, Daniel Radcliffe and the other guy. I forget his name. Rupert, Rupert. Uh, Grant. Mm -hmm. But I don't, um, that's also some, one of the wonderful things they can do is, you know, they take the book descriptions and they can kind of, as, as long as it's ambiguous and it's not specific, like, like with the Weasleys, they all had flaming red hair. So you know what that is. Yeah. So you moral, moral of the story is sometimes you should take your material and make it verbatim if you're changing it up for a different medium. And sometimes there's flexibility and you can adapt and change things and move stuff around. But it's all about knowing your audience and thinking about what people are gonna like and doing the best you can. Well, maybe we should ask Nora about her making a short out of a feature length film. <laughs> Let's show a clip from Nora Berman and then we're going to bring her on. We'll talk to her about Pick a Color and the portrait of a lady on fire. Yeah, so uh, George Miller, he got his wife, um, Margaret Sixell, to edit because he wanted the film to be like, not your typical masculine, like choppy action thriller. Yeah. He wanted it to be something more lyrical and violent. Oh, wow. That was, that was really beautiful. <laughs> well, I just quoted myself. <laughs> What'd you quote? What? Um, I review movies for The Voice. It's in the, the Voice of the Village. Yes. Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. That is so cool. It is. It's okay. Yeah, that's um, great. Wow. Yeah. So, you get to see free movies? Oh, yes. Hmm. All the time. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. There's like this art of like sleeping with your eyes open. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> oh, oh, shit. Sorry. No, that's right. I got it. I got it. Uh, but I have to actually, um, I have to write for an underground fest tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So I actually have to get going. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but so nice to meet you. I'm Max. Anna. And we have Nora Berman with us. Thank you so much for hopping on and sharing your stuff with us. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. So, Nora, tell us a little bit about how you got into the whole filmmaking thing in the first place. Um, 
it's kind of a little circuitous, but I really came at it from a writing perspective. Um, in my freshman year of college, I really, I'd always been a writer, but my freshman year of college um, was really when I fell in love with TV writing and like screenwriting um, and kind of honed in like, this is the medium that I wanna write in like this. And it was particularly watching the American office uh, was really what kindled that love. Um, and so I was sort of always pursuing screenwriting, like filmmaking from that perspective. It started from writing. Um, and then I was writing and performing and doing improv and a little bit of like stand-up comedy and a little bit of acting, um, but always still felt like writing was kind of the main source. Um, and then I think kind of from there, if you have the ability to write and you know, it's like ability to make work for yourself and to make experience for yourself. And so when I moved to New York and I wanted to be more a part of the film industry because I hadn't learned it on a technical level at school, um, it was kind of sort of through that that I started like making connections and making my own things and gaining freelance work experience. So it was kind of like a circuitous route, um, but it started with writing. Yeah. Nice. And what was, what was like the first thing that you did uh, for yourself? Like the first thing that you were a part of? Um, the first thing that I, well, would you say the first film thing or the first like writing collaborative thing that was, produced because the first thing I did like the first thing that I wrote that I got to sort of see live was a play um was that a play that I co-wrote in college um uh, and that was when I was like 20 or 21 and then the first thing that I made of my own was actually the clip that I wanted to show you guys is pick a color um which it started out from a feature script project um and kind of in writing it was when I sort of began to fall in love more with directing and sort of being like, I could, I want to direct. Like I always like, I want to be the one to sort of like carry this vision out. Um, so yeah, so that's the first thing that I've made myself. Um, was pick a color. Nice. And I know pick a color that was pared down from the short was pared down from a feature length script, right? Totally. Well, yeah, it kind of, so the, 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 Short is sort of, it takes place, it's kind of like the prelude to the actions of the feature. Um, it kind of sets up the, those events. Um, but yeah, so it was adapted, it was, yeah, it was adapted from, from a feature length story. Um, yeah, and that, that was, I'm sorry, final, sorry. <laughs> That was a finalist for uh, Sundance Institute, or what was that? That was a, that was a semi-finalist for the Sundance Screenwriters Lab. Um, which, which was, uh, I always get confused. It was like, I applied in 2013, but it was for the 2014 lab because it happens in, in January. Um, so that was the feature length script. And um, yeah, and, I, and I, I don't, now I don't even remember, but I kind of was already, when I sent it to Sundance, I was already sort of planning to, to adapt it and to make it as a, as a short, but I don't know when, I don't remember exactly when I like conceived of the short idea. Yeah. Nice. Well, and so uh, I know COVID's kind of put the, damper on a lot of things <laughs> um but uh so what what's kind of uh coming down the pipeline for you are you writing anything new or are you are you yeah um well so if COVID hadn't happened in the before times um I would have been in fundraising to shoot another short film of mine uh next month um that is obviously on hold. Um, <laughs> that's not happening right, quite right away. Um, but in the meantime, sort of over the last couple of months, um, I've had a play idea that I've been really interested in 
um, and been sort of researching on and off for the past couple of years. And I finally started writing it uh, over the last couple of months. So that's been sort of my quarantine project. Um, but I have a couple of other film ideas and like kind of a novel idea. I'm sort of in a place where I'm not sure what my next career move is gonna be. And so I'm kind of watering the creative seeds that, uh, that I've kind of always had ideas for and sort of starting to flesh them out a little bit more um, in a little bit more concrete way. Um, so yeah, I would say the pro my like prime project at the moment is as a playwright, like this play is the thing I'm working the most on, but um, I mean, I have like a few feature ideas that I'm kind of always fiddling with yeah yeah I know I definitely like I have one project that I work on but then I've like start like a couple things here and there and then they, a lot of times they'll sit for a long time before I actually move on to anything else yeah. but um yeah um what's it do you like uh, flipping back and forth between mediums well it's funny you ask <laughs> um I so I do I think that um I enjoy flipping between mediums. Uh, playwriting, uh, I don't think comes naturally to me. I feel like with screenwriting, um, because I write sort of in a very visual sense, I sort of hear or see scenes in my head and then write them down. Um, and it comes more easily to me in kind of a cinematic format, whereas with the play, I'm sort of less experienced in it. Um, so I do, I do enjoy writing in different formats. I think the thing that I get in trouble with is um, in, sort of picking a lane for the industry to market myself as. Um, and I think that that's where, like I've gotten a lot of feedback, even just in pursuing TV writing, um, you know, like I've had literary managers or people be like, oh, you need to pick one, like you need to pick either comedy or drama, you need to pick like, you know, sort of things like that. So I think like I, has, I struggle with trying to nail myself down. Like I freak out about what the industry thinks of all these different things, but personally I really enjoy try like writing in all of these different ways. So. Yeah, I, I hate that. I hate that like you have to like market yourself as like one thing. I remember I had a discussion when I got out of college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an actor or a director. Writing was mm -hmm. not in my, I, my ideas at all. But right. my, one of my mentors flat out said to me, um, and it's not bad advice that he gave me, like it makes sense, but it drives me nuts because I feel limited. He said that you could give 90% to one thing and 10% to the other thing. And the thing that you're giving 90% to, you're still going up against people who are giving 100% to. So you should pick one thing, get in the door that way, and mm -hmm. then you can, you know, that'll open up other doors for you and stuff like that. I don't think I've really listened to that advice too well, but I think it was valid advice when I was given it. <laughs> totally. I think that there, so when I, um, I worked a lot in the freelance film world as a first AD, a first assistant director that, um, um, that was sort of my most professional film experiences in that, in that field. And uh, my friends and I used to talk about uh, like the curse of the slashies. And those were people that were writer slash director slash executive producer slash whatever. Um, slash and we used to film slash editor slash. Slash dad financed it slash, you know, those kind of things. Um, and we put the slashies, like part of it is that that problem is that um, in, at a certain level, how much can you develop your craft if you're trying to do a bunch of different things or trying to develop yourself in a bunch of different ways. Um, but I think that there's a definitely a balancing act and like, you know, I think about someone like Donald Glover, who is like such 
a multi-hyphenate talent in like so many different levels, but his like entree was comedy specifically or stand up or the writing, you know, but he still did that in a very musical way. Like from the beginning, he was rapping from the beginning. He was like super creative musically, you know, so I think it's possible as an artist. I don't think as artists, people should limit themselves, but it's definitely, I think it takes sort of like an assessment of where your strengths are, where you feel like is the best way for you to, to break in. Um, yeah. you, have, you have filmmakers like Jordan Peele, who started out, he's a comedian and he did Key and Peele, which is a comedy sketch mm -hmm. show. It was kind of writing the coattails of the Chappelle show a little bit, doing mm -hmm. more stuff. And then after that, he made Get Out, which is a total flip of the script completely different, no comedy at all. Um, but it shows that people can be very talented in different genres and different uh, mediums. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a balancing act for sure. Uh, it's a balancing act for sure. And I think that it's also a matter of like, um, I know for example, for me, like I spent years like really focusing on improv and I was like, doing that every single night of the week. I was on like three different teams. Um, and I was really, and I'm really grateful for that time because it really honed a lot of things and then for my writing and for my directing in a lot of ways. But part of the reason that I stopped doing improv was because I realized that it was just something I wanted to be good at and it became very competitive and it wasn't, yeah, like it's something that informs me as an artist and I'm really glad I did it. And many people have used improv as their entree to lots of things, but it was sort of a personal like, oh, like, I don't really want to be, this isn't a one-upsmanship thing. That's a waste of my time. And it's not, it doesn't feel good. Is competitive uh, improv a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Is that really yeah. Who could be more oh. improvisational? It's not quite that. <laughs> so, <laughs> there a gold medal at the end, like, you're the most improvisational. <laughs> not quite. Uh, it's more like when you're with a lot of improvisers, it's like everybody, sometimes like at its worst, it can be everybody is trying to be the funniest. Like everything is a bit. Um, everybody wants to shine. Yeah. But in the best, it's the most supportive, like uplifting every idea and sort of heightening whatever you're doing. You know, it's a very collaborative thing so yeah they're but they're definitely like being good at improv is something that you know it's like an athletic team people train to do yeah <laughs> yeah i i love doing improv i think every artist should do at least a couple classes or something because i think it really helps it helps your creative juices it helps you kind of unlock a lot mm -hmm. of stuff and you're able sure. to kind of let go there were also a ton, I remember in my intro level classes, there were a ton of lawyers and they were all like, I'm trying to learn how to be more flexible and go with the flow and like be better on stage and perform. And it was, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's cool. Intro level classes are interesting because you do have like literally every type of person. I took an intro, I did uh, improv like outside of New York for a long time. And then when I got here, I decided to try and take some at UCB. Mm -hmm. I ended up not liking taking mm -hmm. improv classes in New York City, but mm -hmm. my intro class had a lot of really great people. I had someone who trained like at Second City, but at UCB, you have to start at the beginning. I think no matter where you come from, unless oh, you're- everywhere you have to start at the beginning. They make you start at the very beginning. But she, this girl was amazing. She like, she did, she was at Second City, um in Chicago and she like was high up there and had to when she came to New York she had to like start back at the beginning but then we had someone who was like a, 
a business merger person who was like, I have to give a lot of like speeches and talks. And I had another person who was like an environmental like scientist or something. We had literally every type of person. I'm sure a lot of it for those people is like public speaking. Like you just stand up in front of a room full of people and say anything. And when Mm -hmm. that's literally your job, you know, forcing yourself into a class where that's, you know, brought upon you, it could be helpful. Yeah. Um, I've sure. found from a very early age that I don't care what people think of me. So I can stand <laughs> up in front of anybody and say almost anything. <laughs> That's a useful thing to have. <laughs> Is it? It's gotten me into a little trouble here and there. <laughs> but it, I, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So, Nora, um, as a writer, like, what kind of stories are you interested in telling? What's kind of uh, been a through line through most of the stuff that you work on? Hmm. Um, I would say that, uh, I like tonally the things that I enjoy writing or the most interested in are the things that make you, can make you sort of laugh. It sounds like a cliche that can make you laugh and make you cry. Um, like Fleabag to me is an example of something where it's like deeply, darkly funny. And I think at its core is a comedy, but is also something that can be quite moving and quite profound. Um, in terms of the subject matter, I'm definitely, um, I'm drawn to people that sort of are half like part of one world and half part of another, um, in terms of their identity. Uh, I definitely, I'm queer. And so I'm, I'm also those kinds of stories and queer characters or non-binary characters are really are really important to me but just kind of in general it's not like it always has to be be sort of a queer um theme or queer narrative but yeah I feel like my own life experience I kind of was like partly in part of a lot of different worlds and never felt like I fully belonged in one place and so I'm interested in stories about people um whether that's like ethnically or geographically or emotionally that feel like they don't quite belong um, is kind of the stuff that I'm, that I'm interested in. And I also think it provides the best comedy and the best sort of pathos or or stories like that. I love that. I love that. And I think, I think I, cause I, I didn't ever write any other characters besides like, I'm kind of a new writer, I think Mm -hmm. I would describe myself as, but, um, I wrote my first play from very specifically my point of view, my story, my mm-hmm. second play is not that, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to, I saw a couple characters as um, LGBT characters, mm-hmm. just because that's the way they spoke to me when I was writing it, but I didn't want it to be like a play, it wasn't a play about them having to defend their mm-hmm. gayness or defend their identity or defend any of that, but it's also a play that has to do with like the Catholic Church, so I was like, uh, how do I balance, like, I want them to just be in the play because they exist in the world and they should allow be allowed to just exist in this piece mm-hmm. without having to defend who they are every second. Like, not every story about them should be about them defending who they are. It should be about them living their lives and being who they are. Um, so I think that's a really interesting uh, problem that I had in my play. But I, I, I think that... Um, I have a hard time trying to tell stories like that because I'm also like, I don't identify as that. So I also don't want to speak for mm-hmm. yeah. at the same time. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I'm not a white savior for you people. Like I don't, or the straight savior. Like that's not my, my job. For sure. For sure. I think that that's a really, you know, um, 
I think that's something that as a writer, I feel like I'm still educating myself on in a lot of ways. And I know that there are, um, I feel bad, I'm completely blanking on the name, but there's a couple of black novelists in particular that kind of like made this whole sort of program of like, how do you know when you're writing a character from a different ethnic perspective, sexual orientation, whatever, how, how do you know basically, how do you write something that is like respectful or can embody these different things that are different from you without, um, without being racist, without pathology, you know, it's sort of like a how-to, like what are questions to ask yourself as a writer? And uh, I think that that's really hard to do. And it's, um, but like, I would say, I mean, in listening to that, I would say like, if they're queer, they're queer characters and they're just queer characters and, uh, you know, it's gratifying, to, like, I don't, it's not always, it's not always fun, like, if anything, to see stories that are always about the queer narrative or coming out or being punished or, you know, whatever that is, it's so nice to see shows where that is, like, not what it's about, like, the show is not, a, they, they are just existing, like, that is what is the most interesting to see, so, yeah, but I think that's, like, uh, it's, um, it's something I'm, I'm mindful of as well, you know, I've, I, uh, I've been writing, it's something I'm trying to do in my writing, like, to not necessarily um, have a gender in mind or a racial ethnicity in mind when I'm like writing roles, to try to deliberately like write that into the script that it's ambiguous. Um, and, you know, but it's, it's, it's something I think you constantly have to educate and check yourself and, and in doing that, like reach out to people that are queer, that are black, that are whatever, just really sort of, and, and like pay them for their time and ask them like, what does this feel like to you, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's a constant like question to ask yourself, you know, that we're especially now to be asking yourself as a writer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice too, is to consult someone who is whatever demographic you're trying to write about and then, mm -hmm. then get their input and their idea and say, look, I don't want to make it about this person. Is there anything I should do or say, or how should I write it? Mm -hmm. speaking to them you know buy them coffee mm -hmm. something like that uh it could help you never know so what is this short that you were supposed to be working on <laughs> um, but covid decided to <laughs> what what does that mean yeah covid kind of killed my marketing strategy for this film um because <laughs> i had such a good tagline but uh basically the film is called bb it's an acronym like b period b period um, and it stands for bedbugs, um, and it's a short base, it's a comedy um, about a uh, non-monogamous couple in New York that thinks they are just like the best, like best relationship, most radical honesty, most connected, mo least judgmental, whatever, um, and they have this non-monogamous um, marriage and or relationship, and then everything's great until they discover that they get bedbugs. And it immediately sort of becomes this sore that starts to fester of like immediate jealousy of whose partner brought in these bedbugs. Like it must have been someone else that you were sleeping with that brought these in. Um, so it's kind of like watching this relationship sort of devolve as they're like preparing their house to be to be fumigated. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it's a comedy, and I'm really I was I had some like really interesting talent like really exciting talent that was interested and my producer and I were getting ready to, you know, we had a fundraising campaign planned out and like, you know, financing and all these things. Um, so yeah, so it's definitely like all of those people, I still have a team, there's still people I'm in touch with and I'm, you know, like we all are trying to educate myself on what independent filmmaking looks like post COVID. Uh, but yeah, at the moment it's a, it's a back burner kind of, <laughs> kind of deal. <laughs> It's it's on the back burner right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
that's cool. Yeah, I mean, that's complicated too because it's kind of similar to like every, every couple doesn't really know how much of like, it's almost like ignorance is bliss and then they get into a house and they're like, let's redesign the kitchen and then that just opens up a can of worms <laughs> and creates a million problems and they realize things about each other and, but yeah. yeah. I love stories like that. I love seeing relationships. I mean, it's sometimes like it's, it's, I guess I kind of like, like seeing relationships implode, whether that's in a play or whether that's like on screen. Like it's fun to me to see in a comedic sense, like a relationship devolve just because I know that I experienced that with my partner, you know, like those things happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoy, I, with this, with BB, it's really fun to me, A, because I've never really seen like a non-monogamous couple sort of depicted on screen before. Um, I guess a few examples, but not really. Um, but also just that, like, that's where the, the comedy comes from is that, like, they're fine. It's not that they are, they have issues sleeping with other people. It's like they're open and their honesty, like, op they think opens the door to this, like, bed bug infestation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still, I'm really, clearly, really excited about it. And my tagline was going to be uh, BB. Um, oh, what was it? Like, uh, a story about every New Yorker's worst nightmare, or a comedy about every New Yorker's worst nightmare. Mm. And I don't think bedbugs are New Yorker's worst nightmare anymore. <laughs> I mean, they're still pretty bad, but it's not, uh, yeah. Post-COVID, we'll have to think of any marketing. It was number one on the list. Now it's like number seven in yeah. three months. It's, so. it's still top 10, but. It's top 10, yeah. maybe top five. For me, it's probably top yeah. five. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, so we'll see. But it's still something I'm excited about. So when we uh, asked you to be on the show, we asked obviously all our day players to provide us with a film that they recommend that we should watch. I love that one, you gave us a plethora of choices. And then Jim and I narrowed it down to three choices and we gave it back to you. And you suggested Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Why did you suggest that film? Um... Well, there's so many reasons, uh, and I could clearly could talk a lot about movies, as you saw from like my 50 suggestions. Um, so I'll try to keep it brief, but uh, that movie, I think, uh, A, it didn't get nearly attention it deserved on Oscar season. That's just like the most superficial, it didn't get the recognition or the audience I think it deserved. Um, but on a more fundamental level, uh, this film is really radical for me. Um, and in the sense of because um, not just sort of like the story for, for people who maybe haven't seen it or don't know, um, it's set, I think, in the late 17th century in France. Um, and a young woman is commissioned to paint a portrait of this kind of secretive uh, daughter of this, of, of this like rich family in Brittany in a very isolated house. Um, and they develop a relationship and sort of fall in love. And what is radical about the film to me is that um, it is sort of like a complete embodiment of what a female gaze looks like um, in a lot of different levels. It's not just a female gaze in a literal sense of like the story is about two women looking at each other. And so much of this sort of secret affair or sort of beginning to this affair is about looks and the way women are perceived, the way women see each other. Um, but also because this film, um, you know, was made by a female cinema, uh, director, female cinematographer, um, and, and the entire sort of shape of it is uh, sort of imagining a world where there isn't men. Um, like there aren't any men in the story. Um, and 
and the moments like in even in the story they sort of come they bring to life they show aspects of a woman's life that we never that have never been in portraiture before like for example there's this famous scene where um one character goes to get um an abortion and the painter in the story paints this scene she has them pose as if she's getting the abortion and painting this scene and that's never been in portrait there's no portraits there's no famous portraits of that we've never seen that on film before and it's women creating that stories creating that vision and so this project to me uh on like so many different levels is just kind of a radical like it points out all these moments in history and all these things where women were artists women were creators women were lovers women had much more complexity but we literally don't even have markers of that. Like they, there are some sort of hidden traces and there are ways, but it's almost like this hidden language of women in a lot of different ways, not just like in art that is sort of lost that we don't get to see because it's a male, the history we consume, the media we've consumed, sort of the way we see the world is through a male gaze. Um, and so that's why this movie is so breathtaking to me because it's just like on sort of every different level in a creative sense and a physical sense, like it's, it's, it's like, what if we didn't, not what if we didn't have that, but just this is what it looks like. It's unapologetic. And I think it's why it didn't get a lot of traction sort of in Hollywood, but it's unapologetic about like, it's not really supposed to be for men, you know, like the story is not trying to do any, like it just stands on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, for me, it was just like kind of a breath of fresh air. It was really, really cool to see. Um, yeah, that's why, yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know I had, I had heard of it and I knew it was like sort of making waves. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted it to be in the top three that we, I was hoping you would choose that one, but like I loved pretty much every, I was really interested in everything you had on that list. Um, so, and obviously I think you're bilingual and you speak French, so I'm guessing you didn't watch it with subtitles like I did. <laughs> Well, I did. I saw it in the, it's actually the last movie I saw in theaters before COVID. Um, and so I did see, I thought it had English subtitles, but I was, uh, actually there were kind of some people sitting in front of me and I couldn't, I couldn't really see the subtitles so well. So I was listening to it a lot. Um, just as is. Yeah. Gotcha. It's hard. Well, Even if you know the language, I feel like if you watch something with subtitles, you're reading the subtitles anyway. So even if yes. you're aware of it, you can't help but look at the words at the bottom and focus on that, which yeah. I, I personally prefer no subtitles. So when you have a movie like this movie or a movie like Parasite, where it won the Oscar, had subtitles, I loved the movie, but I was like, I hate reading. So <laughs> it, it was really, it's really just because I don't like reading and I want to just sit back and turn my brain off, but you have mm -hmm. to turn your brain on and read. That's really it. Because uh, movies for me are like, they're kind of an escape yeah for the most part so but i really enjoyed it it was a great movie yeah yeah I think the only thing i'm not really fond like subtitles in films don't really bother me um i would say that the only i i feel like when i watch a film with subtitles i need to watch it like i had to, I have, to have another viewing of it because mm. one with a another language sometimes you i don't always get all the inflection of mm -hmm. of what they're saying um, and also sometimes the subtitle comes up and I'm reading it straight through, but the way that the actor's delivering it, there's like these, you know, there's pauses and there's, you know, emotional moments and they're, they're, you know, they're taking their time. And sometimes I'll read something that happened. I'll read the subtitle and it's before they have whatever emotional reaction they're having to it. And I feel like it, it, it 
takes the moment out just a little bit, but I don't think that's a complete detractor from watching films with subtitles because I, I loved this film. Um, totally, totally. I know exactly what they like spoil. There'll be like a pregnant long pause and it's like, I do love you. And you're like, I read it 30 seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I totally understand that. Yeah. Well, Nora, thank you so much for sharing your uh, film with us, sharing uh, your experience as a, a female writer and director and just creative all around human being. I'm really happy I got to see your face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, I'm excited to see what happens with BB. Keep us posted um, as soon as all this COVID garbage is, is done with. I'm really excited to see what happens with it. Yeah, and I would love also um, a short plug. My website is going to be live uh, probably within the next three days. Uh, so you can visit it at www.noraeberman.com. <laughs> Um, and I have more writing and my films up there and, and all kinds of things. So, yeah. I think by the time that we actually post this, then it'll already be live. Which will be and we'll put all of your, um, your social media handles. We'll put the website um, on this podcast so everyone can check out your stuff. Oh, awesome. Well, you guys, thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. I feel so honored to get to just like chat about movies. And the pleasure is ours. Yeah, it's very, I'm very curious about Jim's background. Like this room looks like an amazing, like an underground bunker, but there's like all this equipment back there. It's very- All uh, my camera gear. Mm -hmm. awesome. uh, more camera gear. Yeah. And ridiculous movie posters. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's awesome. the room. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, well, we'll let you go now, but thank you again. Thank you so much. And thank you to Nora for coming on the show and for suggesting Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, I love this film. I think it was, it's a breathtaking film. It's simple. It's not overly, you know, complicated in the way they shot it and the way it's written and the way it's performed. Um, I, I thought it was brilliant. I really liked it, but What's your opinion? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I, as straight white male, this was not a movie for me. Mm. It was literally not for me. It's for the opposite demographic. Maybe not the white part, but opposite demographic. Uh, it, for me, it was really boring at first. Mm. I was sitting there trying to figure it out because I didn't look it up or, or anything in advance. I just put it on and I just watched it. Yeah going in completely, you know, empty-minded about it. Uh, I was really bored, I'm not gonna lie, at first. And then all of a sudden I saw this romance building between them, and I was like, that's interesting, I'm kind of getting this weird vibe between these characters. And then they kissed, and eventually it got really romantic, and I was like, oh, that's where this is going. And then everything from the beginning of it kind of made more sense to me, and it all kind of came together and then the story really started to unfold and their life together they you know they kind of fallen in love over the course of like five days and it just it all clicked together so at first i was really bored but in the end really liked it great movie um little plot summary basically uh this young painter this female painter comes in what's her name Marianne. Marianne comes in to paint. Eloise. Eloise. 
I knew these, you know what it is? They're all French names, so they're harder for me to remember. Uh, the movie's in Marianne? French. Marianne, yes. <laughs> but it's not Marianne, it's Miriam. Like, <laughs> say it in French. Uh, the whole movie's in French. It is with subtitles, which is a whole conversation in itself. We kind of talked about it a little bit with Nora. Uh, but the movie itself is about a young woman who comes to paint Eloise because she's being married off to some guy in, in Milan. She's not too happy about it. Uh, so she doesn't want to, you know, be painted for sure. She barely wants to be seen. She's basically... Uh, like completely depressed and also her her sister died her sister yeah her, yeah her sister was so uh Eloise was in a convent actually before this um and her older sister was betrothed to this mysterious man in Milan and she didn't want to do it so much so that she ended up taking her own life they think she jumped off the cliffs um and so now in order to continue this deal, because marriage back then wasn't always about love, it was a lot about business. Her mother pulls her out of the convent and says that, you know, now she's gonna marry her. So then over the course of this time, Marianne is trying to remember from her daily walks, she's being, uh, Eloise is told that Marianne is a walking partner for her. She's trying to remember these bits and pieces of her to paint her. How easy is it to lie to rich people back in the day? <laughs> You've got, this is your new walking friend. We well, walk with you. Like, but I also, I also feel like her mother, I mean, it makes sense because her sister jumped off a cliff. Yeah, so it's also like, please just keep an eye on her. Yeah, Don't let so that her makes a little more sense. <laughs> but, you know, over, over the time, eventually Marianne comes clean and she, you know, tells Eloise about it, um, shows her the painting. And I think one of the beautiful things about this is that you can see as their connection grows over the piece, you saw the first painting that Marianne did of her. And it's, Eloise doesn't like it. You know, she's like, this is how you see me. And Marianne's trying to defend it saying like, well, there are conventions, there are ideas, there are styles that are, you know, that's the way we paint. And, you know, Eloise is like, that's not me. <laughs> So over this time as they're growing closer and she's falling in love with her and everything, by the time you get to the, the finished painting, you can see the detail and the care and the love that's in this painting and how beautiful it is. And it's not, it's full of life in comparison to the first one. Yeah, and um, I think too, because when, when she showed her the first painting and she said she didn't like it, she was compelled to destroy it and she messed up the face so that she would have to paint another one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the only reason that Eloise said, like, I'll pose for you this time, because otherwise it's just another painter trying to lie to her to get the thing done. And like, oh, it's finished. But now she really wants to, you know, paint something. And obviously they felt some sort of a weird connection, a weird bond. So there was more to it and she wanted to kind of see where it goes. So like, all right, fine, I'll spend more time with you. I'll pose for you and all that. And obviously that one thing led to another. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think too, I liked how this film took a lot of time to see things from the perspective of Marianne, uh, like we were her eyes, because 
it's almost like seeing in the eyes of an artist in a weird way because the artist is now seeing these things that we know eventually she paints this really beautiful painting of the lady on fire and we actually see that moment when she sees that and is inspired by that and later paints it which is another thing to talk about is the idea of painting things from memory mm -hmm. which is just similes on similes and metaphors and you know applying meaning to such little details and moments that's when i think when we started to see those moments where we would see from Marianne's perspective is when I definitely got more interested in the film because then you can kind of be in her shoes and think, oh, wow, that's a really beautiful shot or a beautiful moment, especially when we start seeing Eloise in her wedding dress, like almost like, it was almost out of like a weird horror movie at the end of the hallway in all darkness mm -hmm. behind her and then she would just disappear. It was creepy. Like she was being haunted by her. And yeah, it was really, those shots were really interesting and cool. Well, but, I, I, I think that what I appreciated about the film is it's a two hour film. And it is, it, there's, no, there's no real music to it, except for the scene where they're at the feast and you know the, all the women start their yeah. um, songs together. Plays music. Marianne plays music for her. Yeah. And they have the orchestra later. But the rest of the film, it doesn't have a soundtrack to it. It doesn't have, you know, background music. It doesn't have any of that. Um, so it it feels you're right, it feels very much that we are Marianne's eyes. And I really appreciated the time that they took with everything. They didn't feel um, rushed. I didn't find it boring in the beginning. Um, you know, I just, I think everything was done so simply and beautifully and the way that it told a love story without all the grandeur of, you know, old romantic stories or without all of the, you know, rom-com stuff of music and this big dramatic gestures and all this stuff. It's just these two women falling in, in love with each other. Um, and the story of, and, and what I really like, especially about like what Nora said is that it really does give an insight into what women's lives were actually like back then. And the things that they did that they, you know, we don't have a lot of historical evidence for, but we know happened. They didn't paint these things they didn't show these things there weren't songs about these things and weren't you know that if there were stories that they weren't written down you know and i think it it's yeah, stunning you out of you know the the other girl comes to them and it's like well i kind of need an abortion no one was like what like no one was shocked everyone was like all right well tomorrow we'll go get you one and it was yeah. and they just moved on like that's just normal business in uh, in 1770 so that's you know the things that women knew and the things that women did for each other um you know to help to to help them and the things that they knew were happening and i found it really interesting that even though like eloise was in a convent for so long when it they're talking about helping sophia get rid of her pregnancy she didn't blink an eye she helped um I just, I, I think it, it beautifully told a love story between these two and it wasn't dramatic. It didn't 
tie up in a, a nice happy bow at the end. They didn't end up together. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> Although you could probably assume that considering it's in the, in the 1700s. Um, but they didn't end up together. And I think... A little careful with spoiler alerts because this movie came out in February 2020, which, mm -hmm. you know, right before the end times. Right. <laughs> right before the dark ages. Mm -hmm. um, the no-no time. Yeah. <laughs> what call it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's one of the last movies to actually come out in theaters, which is kind of crazy to say. Um, who knows where theaters are going to be soon. But I, I loved the love story of it because the... It, it wasn't just like, oh, they're, they're girls and they can't be together because they're girls. There was other layers to it. It was a love story of they're in love and their time is short. Yeah. Nothing they can do about that, regardless as to whether or not guy and girl, girl and girl, whatever. Mm -hmm. if, you know, we have until mom gets home and then when mom gets home, the party's over. <laughs> kind of a yeah. situation like that. And also she's here to do a job. She has to paint get the thing done and then go she, you know, she's got a life to live but I did like that ending the way it ended I thought that was great because it was almost like affirmation that both of them were truly in love with each other because mm -hmm. we see we follow Marianne after after they split and they go their separate ways and we see how obsessed and she's always thinking about her like you know, we only see her go to this one event and she sees the painting of her, obviously thinking about her then. We only see moments where she's thinking of her. Not entirely true. When you see the painting of Eloise and you see, the, so the, when she goes years later, she's, she's debuting her art under her father's name because women, roles, blah, 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 stupid. Um, <laughs> That's an eloquent way of putting it. Um, when she sees the painting of Eloise and she sees Eloise with her child, um, now it's years later, she has a child with the man that she married. Um, and she has a book in her hand and the book is, is held up, uh, the pages are held up to page 28. And that that is the page on their last evening together. Eloise wanted a picture of Marianne to remember her by. Mm -hmm. And so Marianne said, tell me, give me a figure. Yeah. He said 28. So on page 20, she opened a book up to page 28 and drew a self portrait of herself lying in bed with her so that she could have it. And in the portrait, it shows page 28. So, you know, it shows that they both still very much so have a connection, even though they haven't seen each other, they haven't spoken, nothing. Yeah. And then you get the final the, scene. Yeah. Long shot slowly going in where we see Eloise hearing that music that Marianne was trying to play her and she's overcome with emotion. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very clear that they're both very much in love with each other. And I I wanted so badly for Marianne to be like, Hey, it's me, like from across the way. Because that would have been the perfect, like, oh, they caught each other up. Like, oh, they're there together. But that's just not how it would have went. So. Well, no, but if you think back to the conversation that, or the, when they're reading the uh, story of Eurydice at the table, 
and each woman, uh, Sophia, Marianne, and Eloise have a different reaction to why when you, it's Ulysses, right? Um, yeah. Question mark? I think it's Ulysses. Why when they're wa he's walking out and he has Eurydice behind him and if he could just make it out of there without turning around to look at her, then he'll have her back. But right before he gets to the end, he turns around. They all have a different reaction to that. And Marianne's reaction was he chose the poet's ending and he chose to turn around so that he could have the memory of her. And that's why she didn't walk over there. That's why she didn't, you know. Um, Choose to keep the memory. Exactly. And then Eloise as well, when, when right before Marianne leaves the house on her last day, she follows her down the steps and she says, turn around. Because when she's discussing that story with the, with the girls, she says, maybe Eurydice told him to. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's exactly what she did to Marianne. They knew that this, this had to be a final goodbye. I think it would have hurt more and would have been harder for them had they kept in touch, had they, you know, and not been able to be together. I mean, how many romantic movies and stories do we have of like, lovers that are kept apart and they keep an affair for years and it's always painful and they fight and oh I want to be with you but I can't blah 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 um that's and I think this that's every, huh? that's every single one of them yeah um and I think that this was beautiful in its simplicity of uh, they want to keep that magic and that moment that they had yeah and that's what they want Marianne's first uh interpretation of that story was that when he turned around, it was to say good, or to, to just see her one last time. Mm -hmm. But then when she painted that picture of it, and she's talking to that guy who's talking about her painting, she's, he's like, oh, it kind of looks like they're saying goodbye, and it's a little different from how it's usually painted, because I think she has a unique perspective that relates to her so well that mm -hmm. she kind of saw it differently in the story. I think that's credit to the idea, the concept that art can change your opinion on things to make you think differently and respond differently. You might see, uh, or things might happen to you in your life that when you see a piece of art, you relate it to that. So you might, I might look at something and think it's stupid. And like, like if I, if I had watched this movie and I thought it was really dumb and then you would watch this movie and been like, well, you're not a woman, so you don't get it. That's basically the equivalent of how, art is subjective to the person who's looking at it, the person who's taking it in because of their own life experiences and how they relate to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, I think it was beautifully shot. And I think even though the movie was, you know, two hours long, um, I, I had this anxiety for them in that, you know, as each day passed, and they went to a new day. I, I kept getting nervous that it was going to be the day that it was over. Because um, I think, you know, from the beginning, obviously, that it doesn't work out. Like the very first scene that they have of Marianne teaching a class, uh, a painting class, you know, that it's not, they're not together. Yeah. But I also have any problem with a movie or a TV show that goes and says the title of the movie. <laughs> Like, what's that? Oh, that's the portrait of the lady on fire. Looks into the camera like, 
Ah, uh, he said it. He said oh it. God, you said it. She said it. Like, <laughs> I, Family Guy ruined that for me. <laughs> that joke. Like, ah, they said it. They said it in the movie. I just, uh, it still, it, to this day, it bugs me when people do that. Mm. But I mean, that's just the title of her portrait, so. Mm -hmm. I know, I, I agree with Nora. I'm kind of sad that it didn't get more recognition because I think it's, it, not only is it, it's beautifully shot, beautifully acted, beautifully written, beautifully directed. I think most of the crew and creatives behind it are women. And in fact, actually when this, this made the rounds um, at cons and it got the Queer Palm, which is an, um, an award that is given to films that particularly deal with LGBT themes and stories. Uh, and I think actually the, the director, um, Celine, what is her last name? Cannot pronounce Skiyama? I wanna say that's, it might be Siyama. Siyama? Yeah, I don't know, um, whatever the French people do. But the director and um, author and the screenwriter of the film, she got the Queer Palm, which this is the first time since the Queer Palm was created as an award that a female received it. Interesting. Um, yeah. There's a bunch of awards here. I'm looking since May of 2019, this film has been around and it wasn't put into American theaters until February 14th. 2020 which you know valentine's day 2020 right before the world ended well yeah. does that mean that it would it'll be eligible for the academy awards next year or is it too close to or is it like outside the timeline i mean no it's it's I, i'm pretty sure the timeline is january 1st to december 31st mm. so but I mean, what are the Academy Awards going to even look like next year? Because 90% of 2020 is down the drain. Yeah, I know they're March trying. Now, but who knows? I, I think it'd be smart to just be like, we don't need the Oscars this year. Let's take a breather. Or if you, instead of the Oscars, let's do a big fundraising event for the film industry to put some life back into it. And... Mm -hmm take those movies that were put out in 2020 or inconvenienced by 2020 and roll them over into next year's because it's, you know, by the time the film industry gets rolling again and we actually can go to the movie theater, which is seeming like pretty soon, we're only going to get maybe eight months tops out of the year. Four whole months are down the drain. So there's such a limited window of movies to include. It depends on how the industry handles it because we might hop back into going to the movies and they might just say, all right, well, normally we would put out six movies. Here's 10 and we'll get more movies in a quicker pace. Hmm. So who knows? We'll see. I'm, well, I, <laughs> I'm I, I wish that this got a little more recognition. I don't know if it would have, if it was like, why it wasn't wide release. It was just in certain theaters, right? In, in the U S I believe so. If it was wide released, it wasn't wide released until like, until February 14th. I don't know for sure. Let's see. It was 
Neon and Hulu acquired the distribution rights for North America on 22nd of May. It was first released in France in September of 2019. It was a limited release and then in December in the United States and then had a wide release in February, which I feel like that timing was just bad for it um, with COVID and all of that stuff happening. It then went to video on demand on Hulu March 27th. Mm -hmm. So that is a thing. Yeah, um, you know any movie with subtitles, I take it with a grain of salt because obviously I don't want to write it off because it's subtitled, but it's just harder for me to watch. And I, I like to just turn my brain off and soak the movie in. So when you have to read, that's why I'm not super into anime for that reason because mm -hmm. the obviously the animation style is really cool and it's very visually cool. If it's if it's not dubbed over in English speaking, I'm like. I can't, because I got to read the thing. If anything, I have to watch it twice so I can just turn my brain off and know what they're doing. But. Well, know. I, I'm liking this because, you know, I, for forever you think that, like, I can't, like, I felt so ignorant when I was watching the beginning of it. And I was like, oh, this looks really good, but it's not an American film. Like, come on. Like, that's an ignorant thought process that I have just because I've only ever really been exposed to American films because I don't, I, we don't get a lot of wide release, obviously, of other films. And I just didn't open myself up to the fact that now we do have them available on demand and things like that. So I think that um, it's, it's just moving in the right direction. And, and this film is beautiful, poignant, wonderfully done. Uh, and it's just opening my eyes to the fact that obviously there's beautiful artwork and beautiful creations from other places besides the United States. We're not the only ones that make good movies. <laughs> watching a funny video about this guy who was showing his friend Star Wars for the first time. And they sit down and they're watching it and the friend goes, why are they all speaking English? They're on an alien planet. Shouldn't this have subtitles and they're all speaking a foreign language? And it made me stop. Obviously, I was just like, haha, that's funny. It's a stupid Star Wars video. But it made me think, holy shit, thinking back on any movies that didn't take place in the United States, they weren't speaking English. So when you make that movie in America, it's almost like they're not in English. Like, you shouldn't. So if you make like a samurai movie about what it was like to be a samurai, not one word of English should be spoken. But they, they know their, their audience most of the time is like you, Jim, though. They don't want to read subtitles. Yes. And, and they also don't want to, you know, put horrible, thick accents on people. You know, so, because sometimes that could definitely come off as, you know, a very racially insensitive move, whatever. I mean, if you look at, just look at, like, and this has nothing to do with, like, racism or anything like that but if you look at ever after the cinderella movie that they made with drew barrymore in the 90s that takes place in france they have british accents she has a terrible one but they have british accents why it takes place in france they do that because they want people they, they want people to connect to the film as closely as possible so that people will spend the money and go see it and then buy it on DVD and take it home or now now digitally download it and all of that stuff. So they're not going to make these, you know, make these films and then have them in the original language. 
it, the closest they might come to is actually having them have the accent of where they're from, but still speaking in English, yeah. which is not accurate and is frustrating. <laughs> I think it's easy to talk about this with a movie like Portrait of a Lady on Fire because it's so set in a realistic tone. Mm. When you take on like Star Wars or like Marvel, like Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that, where you're like, why is everyone speaking English? When you have a talking raccoon and laser swords, <laughs> suspending your belief or your disbelief of how they speak is like nothing. Yeah. So for this movie, I think if they had made it in English and they had still said like, we're in France, I think this movie could have taken place pretty much anywhere, but the fact that it wasn't just dubbed over for English for American audiences, I think is a smart move because it's set in realism and you're like, this really happened as opposed to, because I don't think it, it's not based on a true story or anything, is it? I don't think so. Um, but it very well could well, have been. It, it, yeah, it could have been. But I, you know, we have to stop trying to center everything around just American audiences or, you know, so, and that's the thing, like you said, like this film wasn't made for you, a straight white man, but you still enjoyed the film and you can still, create an opinion, you know, you have an opinion on it from your own life experience and you still liked the film, even though there were some elements that clearly were like, this doesn't, I, I can't relate to this moment, but you can relate to having strong feelings for someone, falling in love with someone, like those are universal themes. And I think that if we could just get over our own arrogance as, you know, Americans and understand that like, these are universal things that you could tell a story in any language and people will understand it then, you know, that opens the door to so many other wonderful creations that we are just too woefully ignorant to, you know, open our eyes to. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. America's the best country in the world. <laughs> uh, want to make your fancy movies with some other languages. Whatever you want to do, just keep it out of my TV box, all right? <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> We always end the podcast when I say something really stupid. Um, I feel like it's a good uh, roundup. I feel like it's a good, like, nice closing out. <laughs> Victoria makes a great point. I say something really dumb. That's where we should stop. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thank you guys for coming We appreciate you coming down for Victoria's brilliance and my stupidity. <laughs> You can tune in for more of that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Um, thank you to Nora Berman. Yeah. Her short film, Pick a Color, and for suggesting The Lady on Fire. The portrait, portrait. of The Lady on Fire. Mm -hmm. I am Jim Galizia. I'm Victoria Fragnito. We'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>